Thank you very much for downloading Leeds Book Club podcast. We are joined today by Lucinda Hawksley, a renowned travel writer, author and art historian. Welcome Lucinda and thank you very much for agreeing to join us. You're welcome, it's very nice to join you. Um, so obviously the book that I read is Lizzie Siddle, the tragedy of a, well the world's arguably one of the world's first supermodels and yes, um, it's a, I mean, the, the pre-Raphaelite artists are, are fascinating to me. I think their work is beautiful, but I, ha- I don't think I'd really twigged that it was, you know, the same image, the same woman coming through in so many of them. And obviously this is an area you've been working in and, and fascinated by for a long time. What, what do you think it is that's drawn you to that, to those people? It's interesting. I can I can say exactly that it began when I was about 13 and I discovered the poetry of Christina Rossetti and I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and through her, then I went to an art gallery when I was probably about 14 or 15 and saw a painting by Dante Rossetti and I thought, oh, wonder if they're related because <laughs> I'd never heard of him before. And, um, and it's, uh, through that, I just got really fascinated by it and I became really fascinated by Lizzie. And I just wonder sometimes, I think maybe it's quite a, an adolescent girl thing, you know, Christina Rossetti, Sylvia Plath, yeah. Lizzie Siddle, you know, that, that kind of ilk. And, um, and I just became really, really fascinated by her. And then uh, I'm not an artist at all. I, I wish I were. But um, I love the way that, that artists work, particularly in groups. I've always been very fascinated by groups, people like the Group of Seven and the Bloomsbury's and the Heidelberg School, mm. as well as the Pre-Raphaelites. I, I find it fascinating how artists feed off each other yeah. and, and you know and, and inspire each other so that was really what what started my interest in them and uh, and I, I mean it's it's a, something that seems to work with authors as well I'm thinking of um oh gosh I can't think of the name of the group now but um C.S. Lewis Tolkien they used to yes. all meet didn't they I mean is that is, yeah. do you sort kind of, of Oxford thing Oxford yes. something or other <laughs> I'll edit that in <laughs> <laughs> that's good edit that in and make it uh, absolutely. Uh, do you do you work in collaboration with people, or are, are, is your writing a, a very sort of solitary endeavour? Actually, that's so strange that you should ask that. I've always written on my own, and at the moment, I'm in the process, the torturous process, nothing to do with my collaborator, of finishing off a book with a friend who is an artist. Um, it's torturous because it's the most ridiculous deadline, and. <laughs> we're both we don't live very near each other we're both in London but at complete opposite sides and both crazily busy and um but he's a a practical artist he's a brilliant figurative painter called um Andy Pankhurst and we're writing a book together about art and what makes art work what makes particular works of art Mm. great works of art and um, it's the first time I've ever done it and it's been really interesting in some ways it's been wonderful in other ways it's been really frustrating I think we both think exactly the same yeah and um, it's just been a really interesting experience because I haven't ever done it before I've mm. always done a very kind of solitary I like that just sitting down and spending hours you know just banging out words and, and making it all work that way so yeah. I would never have thought before of collaborating with somebody mm. because prior to, to moving into um, sort of I, I keep I keep being tempted to call it a novel because well, I, I'm hoping to discuss this in a little bit more detail with you later. It doesn't really read like a biography. Your book reads more like a, it's got a very story-like element to it. But prior to writing this, you're, you're perhaps be- were, were better known for your travel writing. Yes. Um, yeah, and I, I actually love the fact that I quite often get emails from people saying I really loved your novel. And that's great because, um, <laughs> you know, I'd like it to have been a novel as well. But I, people do ask me which bits I made up. And of course, I didn't make up anything. It, it is a proper biography. It's mm. just, I love 
the, I think that lives are so interesting, and I love being able to get that across. And I find it frustrating if I read a biography that isn't interesting, because if they're interesting enough to write a book about, mm. then you know their, their life story is fascinating. Yeah. Um, as in fact most people's are. You know, human beings are so interesting. Um, but yes, before I I wrote Lizzie, I'd. Um, written a few books where I'd kind of written entries for art books. I'd written a book called Essential Pre-Raphaelites, mm. which I really enjoyed. They were much more kind of segmented books yeah. rather than books that flowed. Um, the travel writing, I just love. Um, it's a, it's an industry that's increasingly hard to, to get paid work in, and um, it's something that you really end up um, spending so much of your time travel writing or travelling for the writing that you don't get the chance to do much else. Yeah. So there came a point when I realised that actually I had to slow down a bit on the travel writing and do some more art history side because that was what I was becoming more interested in. Mm. But, but I absolutely love to travel. I mean, I travel as often as possible. It's one of my great loves in life. And do you do you sort of when now that you're writing or vi sorry visiting places, but more for yourself than say for for a deadline or for a particular reason do you still write up the experience i do i work for a website called west london today which is just a local website and um and i write up things for that but actually a lot of the travel that i've done recently has been for work as well and mm. um, someone said to me recently will you take ever take a holiday that doesn't involve work <laughs> um I, I went to canada to research princess louise who i'm currently writing a book about um coming out in 2013 I hope, <laughs> as long as I get it finished next year. Um, and I, I recently went off to India to um, to do some work on Dickens in India, because, um, not that he ever went there, but because he's very, very popular there. Yeah. And I went initially for a holiday, but I ended up, it ended up being quite a lecture tour, which was really good fun. Um, and I went and, and found his son's grave, Walter's grave, who's yeah. my great, great, great uncle. And that was really moving to see that um, in Calcutta. Yeah. So yes, it tends to be a little bit of mixture of the both but I think to be honest um, most freelancers and particularly most writers and artists are never really off duty because yeah, any moment you could see something yeah I I have to ask an obscure pumpkin festival in Belgium oh that was so much fun <laughs> I, I used to, to um, do travel writing for the Channel 5 holiday website and um, that was and, and it was quite good fun because I really got to choose a lot of things I wanted to go to and I'm vegetarian and I'd heard about this pumpkin festival because I knew the woman who worked at the Belgian tourist board because I'd obviously done other things yeah. with her yeah. and she'd mentioned this festival in passing and I said oh, I've got to do that and I wrote it up for Vegetarian magazine which was just really good fun as well as for the website I was working on and it was great I mean we both she and I had such a, such a good time when we were there. It was absolutely pouring, and neither of us had even thought to take wellies. We'd, uh, she, the Belgian tourist board had hired us a very nice car, which got completely stuck in the mud, and we had to get hauled out by a, a, a kind of local farmer with a tractor. And she was so embarrassed about taking it back to the higher place. Um, but it was just really interesting, because it actually made you realise... Um, how important this vegetable, kind of pumpkin, squash, all different types of vegetables had been to this area for, for centuries, really, yeah. because they grew really well there. And it had grown up as something quite funny, but it had actually begun as something very serious to do with their livelihood in a very rural part of Belgium. And, and I found that really interesting, actually, the history behind it. And it was just a great fun day as well. well it's such an insight into uh, you know, the, the economics of the area but also I imagine the people themselves that are still yeah. there that have evolved out of a tradition that even they might not be so familiar with except because of this festival. And the other thing that was so interesting was how many people had, had travelled from other countries to <laughs> exhibit their pumpkin. I mean, it was incredible. There was a pumpkin that weighed more 
me, which is always a good thing to know. Um, <laughs> there was one woman who travelled from France, another from Switzerland, and they'd brought their pumpkins specially dressed for the occasion. It was astonishing. I, I'm the mind boggles really just <laughs> at the thought. Um, is there any place that, like, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that India must have been an intensely personal experience, even if it did end up becoming sort of a, a lecture and, and some more work related thing. But is there any place that you just you kind of pull out the map and go, I have to go there, be it for Easter work? Island. Easter Island. I've never been. And I'm almost in some ways almost scared to go that it'll be an anticlimax. But um, Easter Island is a place I'm desperate to go to and for many years it was Petra in Jordan and I went a couple of years ago and it wasn't an anticlimax it was absolutely incredible so there's a good um, precedent place there Libya, which I'm so glad I went to three years ago because you wouldn't really um, want to be no. visiting it now <laughs> I'd like to go to right this minute but I would like to go back again one day yeah. um, because the archaeological sites are just phenomenal mm. and it, it's such an incredible place to go but I would love absolutely love to have gone to Iraq and I wonder if that will ever be possible and I also wonder what will be left of all the ancient Mesopotamia, which makes me really sad. Yeah. Um, but there, do you know, there's so many places in the world I want to go to. But the first place that springs to mind is Easter, Easter Island, Island. Because it's just somewhere I've been fascinated by ever since I saw the Easter Island head in the British Museum when I was about five. <laughs> and I've just had this desire to go there ever since. It's, it's, I think it's um, it's such a powerful, iconic image, especially mm. because we know so very little about it. I can totally understand that. Um, yeah. One of the one of the, the the last places that I mentioned, I promise, um, I I happened to have visited Zanzibar myself, and um, when I was ah. when I was much younger, and I absolutely love it there. I hope that you had a, a positive experience as well. I, yeah, I really I really enjoyed it actually. Uh, the only thing that was sad for me was we thought we were so intrepid, and we we got there on a little boat, and you know there weren't very many white people around. And as we got onto the island, I saw a sign on a piece of driftwood that said Internet Cafe. And I thought, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And I, again, obviously, it has a, a huge history. You work as a, a, a lecturer and as a writer, um, yeah. and uh, and I, I noticed that you've written fourteen non-fiction books uh, from your website. One of which is Lizzie Siddle. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. As I say, I find it difficult not to talk about it as though it's a, a fictional novel because um, it, it's very fluid. But also, I think because. Um, Rossetti and a, a lot of the, the artists of the time, they have been fictionalised so much that it's kind of, it's hard to remember that they're they're real people. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly Rossetti, I mean even in French Lieutenant's Woman, I mean he's just been, he's just one of those characters and the thing that's so fascinating is I started off the book thinking, you know, all completely pro Lizzie and how awful he'd be mm. because that, that's really how you feel, perhaps that's how you feel as a woman, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but he's always, you know, made out to be terrible rape treated so badly and one of the most interesting things for me was a the amount of um, manipulation on both sides that she really did manipulate him which was quite fascinating and it was six of one half dozen of the other although you know he did cheat on her constantly yeah um, but the other thing was that this this man who everybody male and female adored in, in fact i was um teaching about the pre-raphaelites this afternoon to some students and they, they're from america they're 18 and they've never heard of them before so it's real kind of back to basics. And I was trying to explain to them the, this fascination that people had with him. And there's a, a wonderful um, line that Georgiana Byrne-Jones says that nobody can reproduce the sonorous cadence of his voice. Mm. And that line in her, in her book, it's just 
Valentine Princeps said that he was the candle around which they all revolved. And, you know, all these people who just adored him, even though, you know, a terrible friend sometimes, you know, mm. slept with his girlfriends and wives, and, you know, he couldn't really be trusted with a woman, but he seems to have been able to be trusted in any other way. Yeah. Um, but it, I don't, he must have just had such charisma mm. that he can constantly behave badly and still adore him. And I find that really fascinating. I think deep down he must have been a very nice person, or they wouldn't have all kept adoring him. I think that there have been several, there are some characters, aren't there, that just seem to stand out, you know, through history as, as having that personality. I think Byron was one of them, although he seemed to inspire as much hate as he did affection. But, but Rossetti has, um, as you say, there's a charisma, but I think, I think he's, he was also so talented. I mean, it, there's something very attractive about standing next to somebody who's, who's got that level of creativity and, and seems to be quite generous with it. Yes, and that's what I find really fascinating about the kind of the three founders of the Brotherhood, you know, Holman Hunt and Rossetti and Millet. Particularly when I was talking to my students today who are 18 and 19, and I said to them, you know, they were pretty much your age when they started this group. And it, it's just fascinating to me that they all became so famous and they were so incredibly talented. Mm. And I think for Lizzie, arriving in that group must have been truly amazing. Because mm. she'd had you know, a fairly, you know, fairly impoverished life beforehand, nothing like as impoverished as she'd like to, to feel. Yeah. But possibly, as you know, many Victorian women, I, I know, were really quite bored. Um, when I when I wrote my biography of Katie Dickens, Kate Perugini, um, there's a wonderful quotation for her looking back on Victorian times from old age in the 1920s, when she actually says exactly that, you know, most Victorian women spent most of their time bored you know, because they really couldn't do very much. Yeah. And I think for, for a girl like Lizzie, who'd obviously been working very hard, coming into this very creative group, being encouraged to be creative and being made to feel that she was a vital part of their work must have just been absolutely wonderful and very seductive. Oh, intoxicating. Mm. And then on... Yeah. I, I loved... Um, I, I, I think... I don't know what I was expecting. Just from having read the blurb, it was kind of... Um, you know, you, you read the back of the book and think, oh yeah, that looks good. And then when I started it, it, it I mean, I loved the part where she, she, cause she wasn't Rossetti's find, as it were. No. I loved that, I loved that relationship. And I, I, I found it tragic when, um, I can't think of his name now, but begins with a C. Yes, when, when he yeah. passed away. I, I thought that was really quite heartbreaking. I think it is heartbreaking because he was only 27 and he was such a kind of fascinating character. And what I love about him is that his, you know, his father was insistent that he should become a, a lawyer or businessman or whatever it was. And mm. he, you know, there he was insistent that he was, his, no son of his was going to become an artist. And there was his mother and his adoring sisters all just keeping his secret. And he had a, a studio in their own garden that his father didn't know about. I, I think and they would pretend that his visiting models were their friends and take them down to the studio. And I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. I think your your anecdote at that point about the, the taxi driver who drives him home and says, beware of the crazy man in his oh, garden. Yeah, William Holman Hunt, that was just brilliant. I thought that was just... Painting, painting light of the world, yes. Oh, I Be thought... aware of that man who lives in your street and then he has to go to a different, a different <laughs> house, pretend he lives somewhere else. I mean, they were <laughs> so obviously... Wonderful. They, they obviously had great senses of humour, but I mean, I'm primarily struck, and certainly at the beginning of the book, at their arrogance. I mean, yeah. not, not only, I mean, yes, they were very talented, and, and I, I, I don't consider it to be arrogant that they recognised that they were talented, but they took on Raphael. 
And not only they that, did. they created a logo and a slogan. And I mean, <laughs> they they really took it seriously. <laughs> they did, but, but I think it got taken so seriously because it was uncovered. I mean, I think, I, I often wonder, because they all progressed so differently, and when you look at Millet, Holman, Hunt, Walner and Rossetti in particular, the four who became the most successful artists, mm. and see how differently their careers went in line with what they'd originally been saying were their, you know, their ideals. I think Holman Hunt stayed the most true yeah. to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and the others, you know, went off in such diverse directions, you know, symbolism, aestheticism, you know, just, and, and Millet at times, you know, so conventional. Um, but actually, what I, I think um, probably did exacerbate it was the secret being uncovered, because I think the main thing for them wasn't necessarily even so much of going against the whole Raphael. I think it was more going against Reynolds than Raphael. Mm. But it was the fact that it was a secret society and you know that it was so seductive to them because Dante Rossetti's father would tell him stories of things like the Illuminati and the Carbonari and things that we now know about because of the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Probably most people wouldn't have heard of in the UK before Dan Brown wrote his book. Yeah. Um, and and this, the idea that they were having this fabulous secret world um, must have been just so much fun. Mm. And so I think it almost, I wonder if it, it almost became too much for them to deal with, that they'd never expected it to, to go public, as mm. it were, because they, they'd spent quite a long time trying to keep it secret. Yeah. So it must have been a little bit worrying, really, when it went all crazy. Maybe maybe that the very revelation was the thing that fueled them, um, you know, even adding to their ambitions once it had been discovered that they had come up with this this little brotherhood and that they were so confident of their abilities, it maybe that helped to focus them, make sure that they really did live up to the expectations other people had for them. Yes, I think so. And I think it must have been a terrible shock when it hit the papers, but they definitely capitalised on it. Though I do wonder, genuinely, if Ruskin hadn't come along as their kind of champion. I mean, Millet, I'm sure that Millet and Rossetti and Hunt would eventually have made it, particularly Millet because he came from such wealth. But it would have been a much, much harder struggle. Mm. And they probably would have been at least a decade behind where they were yeah. if it hadn't been for Ruskin coming along and championing them and saying they're the best thing to happen to British art in centuries. Mm. You know, so, and, and I know from uh, when I was writing the Katie book that, that Dickens himself actually felt very bad about the impact that his article about the Pre-Raphaelites, well, about Millet's painting mainly, but the Pre-Raphaelites in general, yeah. um, had. I don't think even he realised quite how influential his words would be. And he, he just single-handedly ruined so many artists' careers by writing that scathing article about how arrogant they were. Yeah, which which actually had nothing to do with how good they were. It was purely their arrogant assumptions, you know. Absolutely, and at the time, he really didn't think they were good. And I think, you know, we look at them and, and recognise their artistic talent, but of course, at the time, everyone was so used to the, the very traditional things being churned out from, you know, from the Royal Academy students that anything new was not seen as particularly good and it took a while for it to be recognised. Yeah. Um, and later on he actually said that he regretted it and he did like their art, but at the very beginning he didn't. Yeah. But of course by you know, within within less than a decade he had agreed that Millet could paint his daughter Katie in the black runs with her. So even in that time he'd come round to realise that Millet was a really prodigious talent. Mm. Um I I really like Lizzie as a I, I mean I 
I think one of the things that almost um I almost found frustrating is you're too you're too fair in the book. You're too balanced. You keep pointing yeah, that's out. Good. I don't think I've been called that before. That's no, great. you keep pointing out all the silly things that she did and the stupid assumptions that she made and the pettiness and and particularly you know in in sort of the middle of the book and as it was coming to the end in relation to Annie Miller, I I just can't stand her now. <laughs> I was well, on well, Lizzie. That's the awful thing is I've I've made everyone hate her. Someone <laughs> said to me once, they said, "Oh God, you hated that Annie Miller, didn't you?" And, Sometimes I feel quite bad because, you know, Annie Miller, her mother died when she was about eight and she had to bring up her little brothers and sisters and maybe I was too hard on her, but I did think she was an absolute bitch, I have to be honest, but no. I think... I sometimes think, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't have been quite so vociferous against her. Oh, I, I don't know. See, I, I thought you were, you were quite like, you were quite fair. I would, I would have really landed her in it. <laughs> I am. Um, interesting actually as I said because I really did change my perception of the relationship mm. and um, particularly when Rossetti's father died and he had to rush down to Hastings to see her yeah and he kept trying to get back to London to finish his painting and, and they would be having a wonderful time and going for long robust walks across the downs and suddenly and as soon she's... As he was meant to be going home she'd have a relapse and, and I'm sure that he made her do that because he was so unfaithful and yeah so kind of wavering in his affections manipulation that he obviously couldn't see but comes out through his letters yeah. to his friends oh well I, I need to stay here more Lizzie's had a relapse please can you send my painting things from London and you think gosh he had no idea quite how manipulative she was being but as I say she, she he probably made her yeah manipulative. she didn't really have a choice I, I thought it very um I mean the the unseen manipulation on her side by by Rossetti but he was equally um he seemed to be equally unaware of you know that that chapter. I think it was called "Why, Why Doesn't He Marry Her." All yeah. of his friends were curious as to this. He seemed oblivious to the fact that he was um, he was putting her in this rather awkward position. And I mean, I I agree with your your analysis throughout the book. I think that there is very little chance that they were living in such close proximity to one another and not enjoying a full relationship in Absolutely. terms of. Well, she would have been crazy to stay at his apartment if she wasn't. Yeah, I because, mean, you know, she'd already lost her reputation. With, you know, the um, after her death, you know, the the landlady um, was told that you know, had said herself that she described Lizzie as having been his mistress beforehand. So if she wasn't sleeping with him, she was a crazy girl to lose her reputation so so mm. willingly. Um, but yes, I I do find it interesting actually that all four of the Rossetti um, siblings were so reluctant to marry. Um, I mean, he married Lizzie, obviously, on her deathbed, as, yeah. as he thought. Um, and William didn't get married until he was 47. Mm. Christina had two broken engagements. Um, and Maria never married. So you, you just find, I find it really fascinating, because they seem to have come from a very stable, happy background. And I have read books that claim that they were all sexually abused by their father, which I have to say I don't actually believe. Mm. Um, but, you know, there, there may have been some reason why they were all so reluctant to get married. I don't know. It's an interesting, yeah. interesting thought, really, because at a time when marriage was so necessary, mm. you know, men didn't have relationships with women like that unless they were going to marry them. Yeah, it, it was very uncaring, and it was quite cruel, unintentionally, I'm sure, but cruel of him to behave that way. But I mean, when it got to the point that his own sister, who, yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Who um who certainly wasn't Lizzie's greatest fan when even no. she couldn't understand why they weren't married yet. I mean it certainly sounds as though it wasn't a female objection. It was he just no. didn't seem to get yeah. it. Yes, and at that time when Ford Maddox Brown gives him the ten pounds to go and buy the marriage license, he goes and spends it on paint. 
cakes and you think, oh no. <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing, and and I also think that they must have been sleeping together because otherwise he would have married her, um, you know, in a Victorian way. Yeah. Because he was so obsessed with her. I mean, it, it's quite common for people now to say, oh, he never really loved her. But when you look at his early letters, he and and people's reports, you know, people like Ruskin and Ford Maddox Brown, mm. he didn't just love her. I mean, he adored her. He was obsessed with her. He couldn't get enough of her. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's very, very strange that he just didn't marry her. Yeah. The I, title um, of that chapter, by the way, comes from Ford Maddox Brown's diary. Yes. I, and I just found it so poignant that he even is saying, why won't he marry her? No one can understand it. Yeah, I mean, just it seemed to be um, well, it seemed to just be the root of so many problems. You know, going down to the fact that their relationship had such a destructive element in it because she was insecure because he wouldn't marry her, and then you kind of wonder how different it could have been. Like I, I, I do, I think that her laudanum addiction was, in, I think, a, in large part due to their the separations that that they seemed yeah. to go through. You know. Yes, I mean, I, I, there's no knowing how the laudanum addiction, well, why she first started taking laudanum. Mm. Um, but I do agree, I think that by the end of the relationship, she was taking it to deaden the emotional pain as well as the physical pain. Mm. And it must have been very tempting when she was feeling at her worst and most miserable to think, oh, well, I'll just take some laudanum. Yeah. So I'm sure it didn't definitely didn't help her addictive state. No. Um, just to move away from their, their lives for a moment, which is your favourite picture of Lizzie? Um, of her or by her, sorry. Of her. Oh gosh, it's um, it's really that's really hard to say actually. Gosh, do you know I've not been asked that. <laughs> I'm I glad I'm unique. Many of them. Um, wow, I, there's the one, the, the Dante Rossetti kind of triptych kind of painting of um, Paolo and Francesca de Rimini. Yes. Where Lizzie is very, it's just it's almost like a sketch painting, um, and the, the woman is so like Lizzie, and they're looking in the first panel, they're looking at. A, at a book together and they fall in love and and then you see Virgil and Dante in the middle kind of you know shaking their heads over it and then at the end they're tied together and you know for eternity um it's almost um, I oh, just oh, find oh. the fact that it's such a kind of tender yeah picture of her as this woman young woman in love with the wrong man I don't I think it's it's rather lovely but um the, the drawings that he did of her in Hastings in 1854 yeah I perhaps prefer even to the paintings because there's one of her um just of her head and she's looking sideways and it's such a beautiful, tender drawing. You can tell that it was sketched with real love. Mm. I, I actually think, in, in many ways, I prefer those ones. I think um, I think you've included two of them in the the sort of yes. pi picture sections within the book. I particularly yes. like the um, it's it's the there's two sketches. One where she's lying back. Um, in that fabulous chair. Yes. <laughs> oh, that chair just looks amazing. I want someone to build me one of those. Uh, yeah, well, it's so comfortable. It it does, doesn't it? Uh, without without the misery and anguish that went with her life. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of perfect reading chair, don't you think? I look at that sketch and I think one day I'm going to get one of those made. Um, but I actually think the the sketches for Ophelia. Um, I think that that. I I I think while Rossetti does her hair better than anybody else. I thought that um, the strength of character that she had came through so much in the um, the John Everett Millet Yes, and, and actually William Rossetti said that Millet captured her better than Rossetti ever did, which was interesting, mm. that he was more realistic. But if you look at their work, I mean, Millet's very, very good for the realism, whereas Rossetti is much more, you know, imaginative. I mean, I cannot believe that every woman Rossetti met had those lips. But yes. he, he gives them those kind of very 
stylized um, Cupid bow lips. Mm. Uh, whereas whereas Millet did did very much you know rely on realism and, and trying to recreate something as as a person actually looked. Yes. Um, well, I, I'm I'm just looking at that sketch that Rossetti did of himself when he was 19 years old, and he has those lips as well. So it's yes. a, possibly almost and he's a very narcissism. Gorgeous, and then you look at later pictures of him, and you think, hmm, oh, is that true? I'm trying to think of what the what the phrase you use is. It's something like there's a photo. I th I think it's a photo, and it has the caption that um at this point he had almost he had he had begun becoming a caricature of himself. And it just felt so true. It was horrible, yeah. <laughs> really cruel thing to say. It, it, it is. It's very sad with Rossetti because the thing I find the most poignant is that in his at the start of his career, you know, he was known amongst his friends, but he wouldn't even touch tea or coffee, let alone cigarettes, alcohol, mm. definitely not drugs. And then by the end, he's a drug addict and he's losing his mind. And you think, gosh, that's so sad that yeah. he began as this bright, sparkling internet, internet, <laughs> internet. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, he had such a great intellect, and then towards the end of his life, he he just did become a kind of caricature of himself, and it is it is really sad. Um, it's a bit. I was doing some work recently on an exhibition about John Ruskin, and he was you know, obviously such a kind of intelligent man, and then he just really loses his mind at the end of his life and becomes a kind of figure of fun to a lot of people, mm. which is so awful because he was probably suffering from something similar to Alzheimer's or yeah. you know dementia. Um, and it's just so sad when it happens in the public eye. <clears throat> I think with Ruskin, it's almost as if, as if Stephen Fry suddenly became, you know, insane yeah. in public. It's that kind of thing. He was known for having this great intellect. And with Rossetti, he was known for being this flamboyant, wonderful, charismatic character who does just become bigger and bigger and less physically attractive. And to him, being physically attractive was such a huge part of his persona. Mm. You know, that was something that he'd really, well, not only had he played on, but other people had, had made comments on. And it must have been very difficult when he found himself becoming far less physically attractive. Yeah. Being, having to try and deal with that. I am, um, I thought Ruskin, Ruskin, you painted a very sympathetic portrait of him throughout the book. I thought he came across as a very noble man. Yes, I mean, obviously, this is not looking at his later life. No, oh, ending in 1862 with Lizzie's yeah, death. Yeah. Um, Ruskin, I, I did feel sorry for Ruskin with the whole Effie thing. Oh, I, I think he treated Effie appallingly, so um, I'm very, very glad she went on and married Millet, and I think Millet's one of my favourite people, so yeah. um, <laughs> I love him. I think, you know, it's great that she found happiness with him, but I did I did think how nasty it must have been for Ruskin to have people literally sniggering about him over their daily newspapers. Yeah. And, and I also find it very interesting that, because um, obviously later it becomes more apparent that he has quite an obsession with young girls, Yes. He had a. He was an only child, but his parents adopted a daughter, an older sister for him, mm. who was about two years older than him, and she died of an illness when she was twelve, and he was ten. And I do wonder if that kind of halted his emotional progression, mm. and that's why he went for girls of around that age, mm. um, because it's very. And, and I think. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I think Ruskin would be an absolutely fascinating psychological study. I'm sure it's been done. Yeah. Many times, but um. He, I think, was at his most interesting around the time he was with the Pre-Raphaelites. I think yeah. he starts to, maybe not his most interesting, but his most lucid. Mm. Um, later on, his history really becomes quite sad and almost painful to read. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly I found the whole bit about, about Millet and, and, I mean, to be posing for the guy that you know is, 
Yeah. Oh, I, I, I found that um, almost car crash reading, if you know what I mean. You can't look away, but your brain mm. just doesn't want to process what you, what you're reading. It's just um, I think it's it, it was very human. But he did he had considerable dignity. Yes, he did. And I also do think that he was emotionally stunted, which is probably why his yeah. relationship with Effie was so weird. Yeah. And perhaps he was able to compartmentalise it more. Mm. Perhaps had it been the other way round, I can't imagine Millet would have been able to paint him. No, I don't. Yeah, I think um, I so think, I think that's... It, it had to be that way. But also, you know, that he just loved Millet's work. Yeah. And wanted to be immortalised by him. Must have been a very hard decision. Because part of him probably thought, well, that's sort of, I'm not sitting for him. But yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a discount. Yeah, exactly. I'll just get it done, and then I'll I'll be really cross with them afterwards. I don't know. I, I do think as well that it's it's often very hard for us um, looking back on what the Victorian, hmm. particularly with men, what Victorian society was like, and yeah. the total lack of being able to show an emotion. Hmm. Um, that it was seen as a weakness, and you definitely didn't show it in front of other men. I think you know it's quite easy to judge it by today's standards, but I think then everyone was having to keep their emotions repressed whether yeah. they felt that way or not yeah well it's kind of when you look back on, on something like the slave trade and, and yeah. judge people for having slaves and you're kind of sort of trying to understand that at the time what what they were fighting for was still valid even if they did you know it's yeah. a totally totally different context and yes. yeah obviously towards the end of her life um lizzie well it's it's odd because as as she physically deteriorated, and I do think there was a, an element of her mentally deteriorating as well. It seems as though her creative output was was becoming almost more prolific. Her poetry, her her art was taking on far more of a personality of her own rather than mimicking, you know, Rossetti or or any any other influences. Um, but her her passing, her her the, the whole the the pregnancies and the the miscarriages i mean that was that was just very difficult what's it like to to i mean presumably at this point she's become almost a friend to you is yeah. it is it difficult writing about somebody deteriorating in the, in that kind of way when you've become quite fond of them it genuinely is it's really heartbreaking to write about an addict actually um and it's because you just get so frustrated with them mm. as, as you do you know addicts in, in in real life but at the same time you feel so protective and you know, I started off with Lizzie, and I, and I think it's very true, in fact, with, with all biography in general, that, you know, you start off, and the reason you want to write this book is because you are fascinated by this person, and they're almost a kind of superhuman, hero-like figure. Mm. And then the more you get into it, you start to find them very annoying, and they're the kind of warts and all thing, and you think, oh, God, you know, I don't like it when you do that. And then by the end, you do, you feel as if they're your absolute best friend. And, and it was really heartbreaking to write about the fact that she was pregnant again when she died, and I... I wish I knew how pregnant, you know, I, I sometimes think, well, was she very early? Did she not even know she was pregnant? Because, of course, the postmortem would never say yeah. um, in, the, in that time. And I wondered perhaps if she had been quite pregnant like she was before and felt the baby stopped moving and knew it was going to happen again. Yeah. I do often wonder if that's why mm. she committed suicide, um, if she just thought, I cannot go through this again. Because it's um, a very again, abrupt say, ending. She may not even have known that she was pregnant. So, you know, it, it's really heartbreaking and so frustrating because you just want to say to her, just stop taking the laudanum. You know? <laughs> you, and, and when she gave up Ruskin's annuity because she felt that she couldn't keep producing work, I mean, I do wonder if it was because he was so controlling as well. Yeah. But it's just very sad because, because I remember somebody saying to me once, well, you know, I don't know why Ruskin made so much fuss about her. I mean, she wasn't that great. And I said, she had been painting for 
about 18 months when she created this. And if you think that's the equivalent of Dante Rossetti being about eight years old, mm. it's actually amazing what she's doing. Yeah. And, and also, I, I think it's quite fascinating how Ruskin, who was such a visionary in artistic terms, um, described her as a genius, which I, even I find a little bit <laughs> over the top. But it's almost like she's presaging what was going to come. And when I look at her work, I think a lot of Pierre Bonnard, you know, what, all the things that he was doing, um, in, the, in the kind of later impressionistic period and and how interesting that actually what Lizzie was doing was not so different from someone like Bonnard and, and I find that yeah really really interesting that perhaps she had this perception of how art was changing even without being aware of it mm. or, or I mean just just ahead of her time in general yeah she definitely was I mean I find the very fact that she didn't wear a corset really interesting mm. and that she she really made famous what we call pre-Raphaelite dress I and mean, you look at the 1960s yeah and it's Lizzie Siddle again and again and again all the things that she was doing in the 1850s um she was a, a very interesting woman to be from the class that she came from and to to have that much belief in herself that she went completely against convention I mean it would be the equivalent today of I don't know walking down the road with no shoes on mm. or you know in the middle of a, of a busy city yeah um, to not wear a corset in that time was was Completely unacceptable. Just, and yet she, I mean, she didn't need it. She was so slim. Uh, yeah, but that was irrelevant. Yeah. You, you had to be showing that you had all this boning and these layers of underwear underneath and that you were completely trussed up. Mm. And I do find that really interesting. I am, I'm just going to end on a slightly more positive note. I, when she actually broke up with Rossetti and she moved mm -hmm. away and, um, I, I thought her, she was at her most triumphant, not when she yeah. married him and not when they got back together, when she insisted on wearing all of her clothes in all of their grandeur, when she was yes. being made fun of at art I school. I loved that in Sheffield. I loved it. I thought yes. that was fabulous. And you really, I, I mean, while reading it, I, I think I was on the bus one morning and I kind of cackled like a little sort of whoop, you know. <laughs> I was so pleased I love that bit. When I found that, I thought, good for you, Lily. I've been bullying you and you can just show them that you've got far more style than they have and you don't need to conform. And I imagine... Oh, I, love, I love that piece as well. I, th I think I thought it was just, she was just fabulous. I was... um. But it was also the first time, and I think throughout the book, you felt like at that point it was the first time in a long time she demonstrated some character. Yeah. Yes, and I think that that was largely because of the, of the laudanum addiction. Um, I mean, maybe she was overshadowed by all the brilliant men she was hanging out with, but I also think that she just spent a lot of her time very doped up. Yeah. And when she needed to make the decision to leave Rossetti, it was as if this kind of galvanised her to, you know, to really give herself a life and mm. to see whether she was as good as people had been telling her she was or whether it was just because she was Rossetti's girlfriend and they were, you know, sucking up to her. Mm. And I really love the fact that she went out there and, and really, you know, did sort herself out mm. for a while, at least. Um, I know we're, we're sort of running out of time here, but uh, one of the other things I liked is while she had her rivalries and seemed to really dislike certain women, I thought it was lovely that she wasn't one of those women who can only yeah. identify with men. You know, they're her, uh, uh, is it Emma? Yeah. Uh, um, Emma, that whose, whose mother had been friends with her mother, who also became kind of a... Uh, Maddox Brown's wife, yeah. yeah, a wife and a, and, a, and a muse to a certain extent as well. I mean, they seemed to have a very positive friendship, and I know it. It all ended rather tragically. I mean, it was very abrupt. Her her death. It felt mm. as though it wasn't. It came out of nowhere, if you know what I mean. But I really yeah. enjoyed that they seemed to have a very good, honest friendship. You know. Yes, I mean, I think the problem was that Rossetti made so many friendships with other women really difficult because. Yeah. 
you know, she didn't really want to befriend anyone and bring them into her life because he was likely to go off with them. Um, but I think she definitely wasn't one of those women who just liked men. In fact, yeah. I think she really enjoyed, you know, with, with having sisters and things, I think she really enjoyed female companionship. And I thought perhaps she, she found in Emma what she'd never been able to find in people like Annie or Janie. Yeah. You know, these women who just vied for her, with, with kind of with her for Rossetti's affections. Mm. Whereas actually Emma was perfectly happy with Ford and, you know, had her own life and they could be friends on equal terms. Yeah. Um, right. I, I, I'm just just in case any of our listeners are unaware of this, you are also you also happen to be the great 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 granddaughter of Charles Dickens. Yes, that's right. With such <laughs> new book out on Saturday about Charles Dickens. Ah, yes, and I, I I know you're doing something at the Morley Lit Fest coming up yes, as well, aren't yeah. you? Relating it's to the, the literary lunch on the Monday. Yeah. Um, which I will hopefully be lovely to meet you. I'll hopefully be attending that. Oh, excellent! That would be really nice. Um, it, I mean, a part part of me kind of thinks, well, it must it must flow through your veins then this creative writing. Another part of me thinks it must have been terrifying when you first started to write and and people were realizing this this connection. What's it like? For, well, how do you experience it? It, it's it's a real double-edged sword. I mean, sometimes it's absolutely wonderful the way that people react. For example, in December, I'm going out to Texas to a Dickens festival. It'll be the third year I've gone, and people just love the fact that I'm related to Dickens, and it, and they, they're such big fans of Dickens, mm. and it's really wonderful. Um, in the UK, I have to be honest, it does tend to work against you a bit more, and I am already dreading reviews of the book, because it doesn't matter how many books I write that aren't about Dickens, as soon as I touch on anything to do with Dickens, people say, oh, just because you're related to Dickens, you think she can write. Um, and I'm sure they won't say that if David Beckham's son starts to play football. But, uh, it's it's like anything. It's like you look at Amelia Fox, brilliant actress from an acting dynasty. Yeah. Um, it is something I always felt was very inherent, and it's something I wanted to do since childhood. Mm. And um, not actually, so it was a bit embarrassing, this, not really because of Dickens, because mm. when I was small, I wasn't reading much Dickens. <laughs> it was because of Roald Dahl, who... I just oh, I, I, was my hero. I just thought he was so astonishing. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to do what he did and to write these wonderful books. Um, and that's really what started my love of writing. Mm. And uh, I think it is, I mean, there's a large family of us, mm. um, not not just immediate family, but lots of cousins. And I'm the only kind of full-time writer mm. um, in the family. There's a lot of actors in the family, which is interesting because Dickens himself was, was a very keen and very Fred good actor. Yeah. Um, wanted to be a professional. But I do think these things, you know, they are inherent. It's a bit like a doctor. Your child becomes a doctor. Yeah. Your child becomes a doctor. Um, I suppose there are these things that come down families. But but it can be quite scary. Um, I won't be reading reviews of the book just in case. I'll wait for my publisher to send me nice ones. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it is, it, it's very interesting. When I wrote about Lizzie, and I was writing the Lizzie and Katie biographies at the same time. Yeah. It's a totally different experience writing about Lizzie and writing about Katie, who I'm related to. Mm. And it's fascinating, actually, the difference between the two. I mean, there were many similarities, but um, you feel so emotionally involved with mm. somebody who you're related to. It's slightly strange, actually, because you think it's so many generations apart, but you can identify with them, and you can actually work out exactly why they did something. Yeah. You think, yes, I can recognise that. Yeah. And it, it, it's slight, it is slightly strange, but I suppose that's why people love genealogy and why things like who do you think you are is so popular yes when did you realize that i mean i i'm i'm trying to imagine what it would be like you know you're 
movie comes on at Christmas and you're watching it as a small child and somebody goes, you know, that was a relative of yours that wrote that. <laughs> I mean, Oliver Twist doing it in school and suddenly, you know, when when did you sort of become aware of, of because I mean, um, it's a, honest, I think I've, I can't remember anyone ever actually telling me. I mean, we've all got Dickens in our name yeah. and, um, and that's quite interesting. Whenever I go to America, they look at my passport said, you raised a child Dickens. It never happens to me in England, ever. It's really funny. But um, it's, I don't know. I mean, I've always, as far as I'm back, I can remember. I mean, I've, you know, as you say, watched Oliver at the theatre or, or at, um, on TV. And I've always known that it was Dickens. But that's probably because by the time, or rather that I was related to Dickens, but probably by the time I was old enough to watch it, yeah. I was very aware of it. I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, it's kind of always been there, I mm. think. It's always just been in the family, I suppose, just like I knew who my grandparents were yeah yeah um right i'm, I'm th- I, once again i decided to thank you so much um for for agreeing to do this you said that you're you're currently working on princess louise louisa yes um and that's due out in 2013 i think was yes that, was that right uh yeah. who are you planning have you got anybody in mind that you're thinking oh would love to get my teeth stuck into them simeon solomon the pre the kind of uh, lesser known pre Raphaelite. Mm. If you know any publishers in Leeds who want to publish a book on Simeon Solomon, let me know. <laughs> I shall investigate <laughs> um, yeah, immediately. Fascination of mine, and I've been doing some work on him. Not that I've got much time to do work on anything else at the moment. Mm. But um, yes, I really want to bring him back to prominence. He was just wonderful. So the- and he was he was um, Jewish, which was quite difficult at that time in London, anyway. Mm. And then they, when it was discovered that he was gay, that was it. His career was over, literally. And it's heartbreaking, but actually mm. also really wonderful because his story is so fascinating. Mm. Um, so yes, he's my he's my next one. I hope, but I need to find a publisher who will take a chance. Well, if anybody listening thinks that that's their thing, <laughs> drop me a line. <laughs> Absolutely, please do, please do. <laughs> right, um, and I do hope that I see you in Leeds. Oh well, I'm, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Thank you so much. I'm just gonna take care.